Hey, and thanks for taking the time to listen with us here at Gospel Way as we seek to find rest in Christ. Please know that this is supplemental and does not replace your local church or the pastor that God has given to shepherd your soul. But it is our prayer that God will use these resources to bless you and point you to Jesus. So Hebrews chapter number 6, verse number 9 through verse number 12. Last week, we ended up covering one of the passages, and I know we said this last week, one of the passages that is often misunderstood, often misconstrued, um, and often misapplied. But in context, I think we saw that it makes sense. Um, and in a sense, as I was kind of thinking over that last week, what we went through last week, kind of thinking over through it this week, the author's really not looking at anything that would be foreign to these people. They would have understood that in the Old Testament culture, even those who wandered around in the wilderness, you had people who were in amongst the covenant people of God but did not have the covenant inside of them. They were among those who believed God, but they weren't believers themselves. And you see that again and again with Israel. You see people who they're part of the people of God physically, but they're unbelieving spiritually. And that was, that was really who the author was addressing. People who were among the covenant people, but without the covenant in them. He was saying, there's people among you still who they're among you as covenant people. They're among you as the people of God, but they don't actually believe themselves. They have tasted of those things that you have consumed, but that's as far as they've gone. They've not been willing to consume those things themselves. They've not been willing to take the gospel themselves, but they have been satisfied with just tasting those things. And the beauty of that text and the text that we'll be covering tonight is these texts together, they allow us to experience the mixture that Scripture is given to us in. I was reading, reading some stuff from John Owen last night, and he said that if all we ever gave was the warnings and the law— then we'd end up with a lot of discouraged, scared, and weary people. He said if all we ever gave was the promises of God, then we would end up with a lot of, basically a lot of lazy people who just didn't care, who thought everything was just the way it is. But in Scripture, and as we go through Scripture systematically, what we see is warnings and comfort, law and gospel, Good things and bad things. So you see this balance that God gives, and that balance isn't foreign from the text tonight. So what I want to do, I want to go ahead and read this section of Scripture, but I want to start out in verse number 1 and read down through verse number 12 so we can kind of even see that as we're reading, and then we'll explore verse number 9 to verse number 12. The Bible says, leaving, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ... Let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of doctrines of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we do, if God permit, 
For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain and cometh off, that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs meat for them by whom it is dressed receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh to cursing whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that are accompanying salvation. Though we thus speak, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor and love, which you have showed towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance unto hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So we see that even in the text. He starts out and says, this is where we're going. This is where some of you are at, but this is where some of you others are at. So he brings in that distinction. But from this text of Scripture tonight, I want to look at the beloved in verse 9 and 10, being diligent in verse number 11, leaving laziness in verse number 12, and continuing also in verse number 12. As the author starts out here, like I said, he had just got done basically rebuking and exhorting a crowd of people who had only tasted of the things of God to not just taste, but to consume those things. Otherwise, they would not be back. He told them that. He said, he said, those who leave after only having tasted of the word of God, of these good things, it's impossible to renew them again unto repentance. So he said, it's impossible for them to come back exactly like they are. They're not going to have tasted of the good things of God and leave those good things and come back to taste them again. And again, we went through all of that last week. He doesn't say that it's impossible to renew them upon their repentance, but it's impossible to renew them unto that repentance. They had changed their mind once and only tasted, and they weren't going to change their mind just to come back and taste again. So he's warning those who are in the assembly, if they're there, take the whole thing. Don't just taste it, take the whole thing. So he's warning those. He says, there's some of you who, if you leave, you're not coming back. But in verse number 9, he gives a really great three-letter word and says, but... And then he calls them beloved. So he's changing the direction of what he's saying. John Owen explained this by saying that he spoke a warning to them, but this warning wasn't about them. So they received the warning of missing the gospel, but those who believed the gospel, that warning wasn't about them. And we, again, we can see that and we can understand that. And that's how we come around these texts that seemingly would tell us that you can lose your salvation and understand that we're not losing our salvation. Because while those texts are reading, written to us, if we have believed, they're not written, written about us. 
But he uses this word beloved. And as I was looking through things, this word in particular, it means and is even translated in other places as dear friends, dearly loved, beloved. You kind of get the gist. Basically, the author is is showing how much he cares about these specific people that he's getting ready to address. It would be the same as us greeting somebody that we really, really care about. You know, you will walk through the store and you'll see somebody that you're acquainted with and you kind of raise your hand. You may say hi. You may have a little bit of small talk, but you wouldn't necessarily walk up to that person and say, my dear, dear friend, man, I missed you. How much I love you. But there are those people that you maybe haven't even seen for a while and you have that deep love in your heart for them. And when you see them, that love comes out and you're just excited and happy to be able to see them and to show love to them. And that's basically what the author is doing here. He's saying, my dear friends, my beloved, those of you that I know and that I really, really care about, I wasn't talking about you because I know that you believe. And we'll get into why he was saying that. But this word beloved is the only time that this specific word is used in the book of Hebrews at all. If you read the book of Hebrews, you're not going to find that word beloved or dear friends or dearly loved anywhere else in the book. So he's taking a break from his warning to address a certain group of people here, which also helps us prove that the last text wasn't about those group of people. Interesting thing, even as I was looking at that word beloved, that word in the Gospels is only ever used when the Father is talking about the Son. And that's how that ought to be with us. When we see other believers, what God has put in us, that love that God has put in us, the love that, he, that even Christ said in John 17, the love that the Father had for the Son, that's the love that God has put in us for those other believers. That ought to be evident, especially in the church. Y'all not walk into the church and see people who are believing, greeting one another with, hey, how are you? Yes, uh, I don't want to sit on that side because they're on that side. I'm going to go sit on this side. That ought not be how the church reacts with one another. We ought to greet one another with this same intensity, with the same love that God says that the Father has for the Son. That ought to be flowing out of us to one another. And that's what the author does here. He says, beloved. It's like, man, I need to tell y'all something because I don't want you to get worried about what I just said. And he goes on to explain those things. He tells them who they are. And then he says, we are persuaded. He said, I'm persuaded. He didn't say that I think. He didn't say I hope. He said, but I am of full confidence. I firmly believe. I firmly trust. I am sure. I am persuaded. What does he say? Better things of you. Those better things, if we look back at verse number four, five, and six, he says that there's a group of people who have taken, they've tasted of good things. They have tasted 
of the good word of God. But in verse number nine, he says, I am persuaded, I firmly believe better. It's not just that you have tasted of good things, but you have received those better things. And that's what we've seen all the way through the book of Hebrews. He talks about Christ being better. He said, I am persuaded that you believe Christ. And not that you just believe him, but he goes on to explain not just better things, but the things that accompany salvation. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting. I've seen you. You have expressed your belief, and I believe that you believe. And so he's going to say some things to this group of people who have put their belief in Christ. These things weren't just slowly grown up in them, these better things. It weren't, wasn't things that they had just produced. But he was persuaded by the nature of God himself that these things were in them. He wasn't looking at them. He said, I think some of you have got it, and I think some of you are still have to, going to have to work on it. Or I think some of you are doing really, really good, and some of you, you need to get, get yourself in gear. Shape up. Tighten up, however you want to say it. He wasn't saying that. He was saying, I'm persuaded that there are better things in you, and I'm persuaded, and he goes on to explain this, because of the nature of God. Because I know what God does. I've seen God fulfill his promises. He was persuaded of these good things. As we kind of walk down through here, he says these good things accompanying salvation though we thus speak. So he's saying, I said these things about people who had just tasted. But he said, I'm persuaded that you have the things that accompany salvation of those we just speak. And again, if we look back at what he had just talked about, he's persuaded because there are some, when the rain falls, it brings forth herbs for them whom it is dressed, receiving blessings from God. So he said, I've looked at you. You have these things coming out of your life. When you hear the word, there's specific things that are happening. You're showing love, not hate. All of these different aspects that he gives us on what it means and what happens when you truly believe Christ. He said, I am persuaded because I see these things. You're not, you're not reacting like the ones who just taste you're not bringing up cursings and thorns and thistles when you hear the word of God. And if nothing else, with the confidence that the author had in what God was doing in their life, we ought to see that in each other. We ought to look around and be able to be confident that we are believers together because we see that love coming out of each other. And I'm not saying that you can see, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not advocating that you go find the, the person that says they believe and is full of hatred and you go up to them and say, you know, I really don't think you're saved. I don't think you got it. Or worse than that, going over, hey, I really don't think that guy's saved. Don't tell him I said that, but I, look at the way he's acting. What the author is conveying is that he has been brought confidence. He is persuaded that God is doing what God said that he was going to do in them. We ought to give each other that same confidence. 
Uh, we ought not look around at each other and wonder whether or not somebody actually believes because the fruit that they are bearing is completely unbelieving. But he goes on. He says that he's persuaded, but why is he persuaded? He's going to tell us. He says that he is persuaded for God is not unrighteous. Again, he's calling back to the nature of God. He's saying God has said those whom he has called, those whom believe, God has said these things are going to happen in them. In a sense, the author is saying, I believe that you believe because God has said that this is what it looks like. He's saying, you are giving me confidence, not only that you're believing, but you are giving me confidence that God is not unrighteous. That God is doing what he said that he was going to do. And as we go on through this chapter, we're going to see where he calls other examples to mind to this group of people of God doing what he said he would do, even amidst their failings. But that's what he's getting at. He's saying that he believes and is persuaded because he knows that God is not unrighteous. He knows that God is not unjust. He knows that God is not going to say one thing and do a completely opposite thing. He's not going to say, this is what I'm going to put in my people and then put something else. He's not going to say, this is what it's going to look like when you believe and then make it produce something else. He's not going to say that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, long-suffering, etc. And then shove adultery and envy and strife in you. The author is confident in their belief and he's confident in their God. He says that God is not unrighteous. And then he explains why and how God is not unrighteous. And we find that right there in the same verse. Verse number 10. God is not unrighteous. How is he not unrighteous? To forget. He, he said God is not going to forget. So in a sense, we can gather that if God saw those things and forgot about them, then that would be unjust. Now, as I was thinking through that, one thing that came to mind was Joseph. So we all know the story. Joseph gets sold off, goes into Egypt. Potiphar's wife basically frames him for something. He gets thrown in prison. These guys in prison, they start having dreams. He's like, I got you. He says, here's what the dreams meant. Dreams come true. Cupbearer gets freed. Baker, so we got a cupbearer. He says, okay, you're free. When you get before Pharaoh, don't forget about me. What happened? He got forgot. Exactly. That cupbearer unjustly, wrongly, forgot about Joseph. He was so enthused by being free, he forgot everything that happened before him. But God's not like that. Amen. And we even see that in the story of Joseph. While the cupbearer forgot about Joseph, 
God never forgot about Joseph. And we saw in that story, we see those things happen. And what the author is saying is that God's not unjust. He's not going to forget. We're going to see what things he's not going to forget. But God's not going to forget. In Isaiah 49, verse number 15, we've used this in our assurance in the beginning of our services. The Bible says that he says, can a, can a woman who has a suckling child, can somebody who is still feeding their infant forget about them? He said, even more so, God's not going to forget about you. That was a promise that was given to Isaiah and Isaiah gave to those that he wrote it to. The author is saying, God, is it unjust? God's not going to forget about you. He's not going to accidentally misplace you. You're not going to get lost among those who say that they believe but really don't. You're not going to get lost among those who say that they believe and are producing hatred and envy and strife. God's not going to forget you. He's not going to lose you. He's not going to leave you in the car. None of those things are going to happen because God is just. We'll go on next next week or the week after to see that God is so just that when he could not find anybody else to swear by, he swore by himself. So what will God not forget? We see that he's just and that he's not going to forget. What's he not going to forget? Verse number 10. He's not going to forget your work and labor of love. Notice the distinction there. He says he's not going to forget your work and he's not going to forget your labor of love. So you're, obviously our labor of, our labor of love is not part of the work that's going to be forgotten. Also, notice what he says. He says God's not going to forget your work, not your works. That work is singular. That word that is used here is the same word. This is something that John Owen pointed out. The same word that is used in Hebrew or Romans chapter 16 and verse number 26. Where Paul talks about an obedience of faith. Basically, Paul was telling them that they had believed. The obedience of faith is belief. So the author is basically saying here. God's not going to forget your faith. He knows you believe. He's not going to forget that you believe. And that makes sense in the context because we had people who weren't fully believing. The author is giving them confidence that God isn't going to lose their true belief among the ones who are falsely believing. He's not going to lose their true belief among the ones who are halfway believing. God's not going to forget those things. John Owen again, he said that these people were distinguished. He said Christ was their business and gospel faith was their work. They had trusted Christ and their work was that faith. God's not going to forget their faith. What else does he do? He says faith. he's not going to forget your work and... Your labor of love. So this labor of love is distinguished from this work. 
And just the fact that the author inserts labor of love insinuates that this love is seen. And we'll get this as we continue down through the text. He doesn't just say he's not going to forget your belief and your love, but he specifically says your work by, by in, in, in designating that that is a saving faith and the labor of love, that it is a seen love. If you turn over to Galatians chapter number five, you don't have to do that. But in Galatians chapter number five and verse number six, it says that faith worketh love. So this love that is coming out of them came from the faith that they had to begin with. And he's calling again. This makes sense in the context because he's just talked about people who are bearing fruits of love by hearing the word versus people who are bearing fruits of hate by hearing the word. He's distinguished these groups of people, and he's saying to them that this faith is working love. And if everybody else's mind went where my mind went when I saw labor of love and seen love, then most likely you pretty much encompass the whole New Testament, but specifically 1 John. Because again and again, even Christ, what does he say will be the sign of, to people that we follow him? What's the sign that we believe? How are people going to know that we're his disciples? Because we love each other. We love the brethren. The author here is saying, I'm confident that you believe because you love each other. And that's not something that you do on your own. Especially in this context where you had Gentile believers mixing with Hebrew believers. You had people who did not like each other, who weren't like each other, but they were loving each other. And again, that's what the church ought to look like. You ought to see different nationalities and different income statuses and different racings and different people from different places around wherever it may be coming together to hear about the same Christ that they put their belief in. Not only that, they should be loving each other. Something almost unnatural. Because we don't tend to love people who are not like us. There's almost and we there's almost a tendency in us, and I don't even I I have this tendency even in myself, it's the reason it came to mind, but There's almost a tendency in us to naturally, if you hear about somebody getting killed, somebody gets shot in Salisbury, your mind automatically goes, well, I wonder what they were doing. I wonder what nationality they were. Your mind goes to these things because you're going to have more pity on somebody who is like you than somebody who's not like you. That's natural love. That's what comes, that's that, that's that love that we have outside of the love of God. Yeah. But what the author is saying is that this faith is working in you a love just like the love that he talked about when he addressed them. This love that the Father has for the Son, this love that God has bestowed upon the world, is the same love that the author sees being worked in these people. He said, you are loving unnaturally. 
specifies this. One of the things that, again, that John Owen pointed out, spoiler, I used a lot of John Owen when I was studying for this, but he points out that God has a special type of love for the believers. That God loves everyone, but there's a special love that God has and places on those who believe. That he calls them his beloved. He said that's the same way we ought to be. He said if God has placed special love on those who believe, we ought to too. He said we, our love ought to go to everyone for every reason, but when people look at us, they ought to see an unnatural type of love coming out of us and that unnatural type of love specifically attaching itself to other believers. He goes on to explain in that same verse, verse number 10, how this love is playing out. So it's a seen love, and we know this because he says, this labor of love which ye have shown toward his name. So he said this love is being given to the glory of God. People are seeing this love towards the glory of God. And how is this love being seen? In that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. This love towards God is seen by ministering. People can know that we love God because we love each other. If you wonder if you really love God, do you love each other? The author says, I'm confident that you love God because I see you loving each other. He could not see their love for God. He could not see their belief. But what he could see is that they were ministering to each other. Paul says, bearing one another's burdens, thus fulfilling the law of Christ. Christ said, if you believe me, keep my commandments. And what commandments did he give? Number one, believe that I'm sent by the Father. And number two, love each other. <laughs> he didn't make his commandments grievous. He didn't complicate his commandments. We do that. We say, oh, if you really loved God, you'd be at church X, Y, and Z times. If you really love God, you would act this way and dress this way. What Jesus said is if you love God, you believe me and you love each other. It was that simple. And that's what the author saw in them. He wasn't looking for all these external things, wondering whether or not they were really believers. He didn't go up to see how fancy the church building was. He didn't roll up to see if they had been listening to the correct type of music. He didn't go out in their cars and say, well, uh-oh, he's got this one station on he probably don't believe. He didn't go up and say, well, they're only at church on Sunday morning, so they're probably not believers. He didn't go up and say, well, they find joy in other things, so they're probably not believers. You know what he said? They love each other. So I'm completely confident <laughs> that they're believers. Yes. Yeah. We complicate things way too much too many times. Yeah. So this was obviously, this first section was the majority of the message. But he gives them a few exhortations. So he gives them this confidence. He calls them beloved. And he tells them to be diligent, to leave laziness, and to continue. And we see all of these things here in verse number 12. Verse number 12, he says, so he's telling them all these things. Or verse number 11, I'm sorry. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence 
to the full insurance of hope unto the end. So he's calling them to show diligence, to be diligent. Basically, don't stop doing what you're doing. You're loving each other. You're ministering to one another. You're believing what God said. Don't stop doing that. Be diligent. Again, he didn't complicate things. He said, keep believing, keep loving. He's telling them to display these things always. He says that. We desire that you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. He said, when I see you today, I hope you're believing and loving. When I see you tomorrow, I hope you're believing and loving. When I find you on your deathbed, I hope you're believing and loving. Be diligent. It's not difficult to do those two things. You don't have to have a massive income. You don't have to have great physical ability. You don't have to have special gifting to believe and love. We discount people sometimes who don't have great financial means. And we lift up people who do saying, look what they've done for God. Or we discount people who don't have great physical ability and we lift up people who do and say, look what they've done for God. Or we discount people who are not charismatic and we lift up people who are and say, look at this person. But the author says, when I look at you, all I want to see is that you're believing and loving. That's it. He says, keep doing these things. Be diligent. And he gives them the reason. He says, I want you to do these things not because if you don't keep believing and loving... God's going to forget about you. Not because if you don't keep believing and loving, God's going to cast you aside. He says, I want you to do these things to the full assurance of hope. He said, I want you to keep doing these things for you, not for me. Alistair Begg put it this way. He said, the ground of our salvation is Christ. And the evidence of our salvation is love. We don't wonder if we're really saved because we don't love. Because our grounding of our salvation, our grounding of our assurance is Christ. If we're wondering whether or not we really believe, if we're really saved, we don't run to our works, we run to Christ. We don't seek assurance in what we're doing because that ebbs and flows. I may love you today, And tomorrow, I may not be feeling it. But that doesn't mean that I was saved today and I'm not tomorrow. So we run to the object, the ground of our faith is Christ. But we can show ourselves and show others a full assurance of hope by that love, by that faith. When our assurance wanes, we run to Christ. But when we look and say, well, there is faith and there is love, we can have full assurance. It's not like when I drive to work most days and the the gas light comes on. I'm like, well, I think that I can probably make it to work without stopping. Which is my own fault because I only put $10 in at a time. I never fill up the car. If I fill it up, it'll probably break. That's the reason. That's the reason I want to give you. But he's saying you don't have to worry about your gas tank being too low because you can have full assurance all the time and it's not going to cost you $100 to fill it up. All it takes 
He's looking at the believing and the loving. And guess what? Those around you can have full assurance too. Believing and loving. He says to continue in this because it gives you full assurance. Be diligent to believe and love and you can be diligent to have assurance. He goes on with one more exhortation to them. Verse number 12. He says that ye be not slothful. So he says, don't be lazy. (laughs) Paul does the same thing. In chapter number five, he says, the grace of God abounds over everything. You can't build up sin higher than the grace of God will come and overwhelm that sin. He said, it super abounds everything. This is the power of the grace of God. Verse number, or chapter number six, he says, expecting their response. So we can do whatever we want, right? He says, by no means, God forbid, The author's doing the same thing here. He's saying, if you want to have full assurance, keep believing and keep loving. And you're going to think, well, if my object of my faith is Christ, and I really do believe, and I do love, then it should be fine, right? Even if I don't have full assurance, that's okay. I can get to work on that little bit. I can get by on that little bit of assurance. But he's exhorting them to not be lazy. He says, be diligent in these things, and don't be lazy. Don't As Paul says, don't get weary in well-doing. Don't slack off on your faith and your love. Be diligent to keep learning and keep believing. Be diligent to keep loving. And don't get lazy and quit learning. And don't get lazy and quit believing. And don't get lazy and quit loving. He's just exhorting them to not be lazy. And at the end of verse number 12, and again, we'll get into some examples of this as we go through the rest of the chapter. But at the end of verse number 12, he says, But followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says, here's what I want you to do. Those times that you aren't seeming as diligent, that you're starting to feel kind of lazy, look at those who kept going. That word patience that he uses again and again and again in the book of Hebrews, it means to endure. It means to keep going. He says, whenever you get lazy, whenever you're feeling lazy, look at the faith of those who went before you, the ones who kept going, the ones who kept loving. Let them motivate that faith, motivate that love in you. Paul did that same thing with Timothy. You remember he said, he said, I want to stir up that faith. Where did the faith come from? He says, the faith that your mother and grandmother put in you. Paul didn't just stir up Timothy's faith. He said, remember your mom? Remember your grandma? They kept going. They kept believing. They kept loving. And I want to stir that up in you by pointing you to them. The author's not doing anything, any, anything differently here. He's telling these believers, when you start to get lazy and weak and weary, remember God fulfilled his promises to your mom and your dad or your aunt and your uncle or your grandparents or that pastor or that person in church that had that influence on you. Remember those people that kept believing and kept loving? Follow them. 
We're all going to the same place. He said, I want you to do that until we get there. And again, that's what we're even, even all intertwined in this text. That's what we're called to do with one another. We're bearing one another's burdens in love. When we see a brother who's getting weak, when we see a sister who is getting weak, we go over there and we put our arms around them. We're pointing them to Christ so that they can continue. We're not leaving them behind. (laughs) Even if it's us looking to the brother that's come up beside of us and looking at his faith, that's enough. That's when we meet together. So the grace coming out of some of us can flow onto the others. Because this week, I may be strong in faith and in love. And I may be able to go around and help a brother or sister out who's weak in faith and love. But next week, I might be weak in faith and love. And that brother can come over and help me in faith and love. When we meet together, that's what we're doing. We're hearing of those things from the pulpit, from the Word of God, through the fellowship of the saints, all those aspects that God has given us to show His love and His grace to us, we've been given those things. So the call of the author is to follow those, the ones who endured, just follow in their footsteps. And if you can't find anybody else who did, Christ did for you. Christ was the perfect example. He was perfect. His love was perfect. If you can't look around to help have anybody help you out, look to the author and the finisher. Focus your eyes there. You may have to crawl, just like the confession said. You may, your faith may be so weak that you have to army crawl to the finish line. But you can have confidence you're going to get there. Because the one who went before you is not going to leave you behind. He's not going to forget about you. The call of the author is to look outside of ourselves to a God who is not unrighteous. This is our motive. This is our motivation for the Christian life. Look at God. He's not going to forget. Keep believing Him. Keep loving each other. Let's pray.